to another episode of The Ladies' Room, along with Jane McManus. I'm your host, Julie DeCaro. Hey, we both write over a Deadspin. Hope you'll take a read. So, Jane, we have... Uh, so, a week ago, we were doing this podcast, and we were watching people storm the Capitol, and we were like, I, I can't believe that, you know, this is happening. And it seems kind of incredible that a week later, we are still sitting here talking about this, watching it on TV, just watching the impeachment. Um and sort of out of the same, we talked about this a little bit last week, but I just wanted to kick off the podcast, get, sort of circling back to this idea. I know that I tweeted about it, did a whole thread on it, and then like the next day you did sort of almost the same thing, not from different angles, like there were different threads, but I think they're sort of getting at the heart of the same thing, which is this idea, whether you're online or you're in person on the Capitol steps or you're inside the Capitol smearing feces on the walls. There's this real, for me, this real thread that runs through this of like white male entitlement um, that free speech means I can do whatever I want without consequences. And, you know, I saw you say today that you used to be a First Amendment absolutist, as did I, um, until I started getting harassed online. And then I became not a First Amendment absolutist real quick. Uh, because I think that looking at the First Amendment as from as an absolution that you, there's nothing you can say or do, which has never been the case, right? I mean, we can we can say it all we want, but there have always been things that fall outside the First Amendment as far as the law is concerned. Can't tell someone to go kill someone else. Can't tell. Uh, can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Can't verbally harass people following them down the street. I mean, there's always been those things. So this idea that you know there's nothing outside the First Amendment that any kind of speech you exercise is uh, the First Amendment, and any consequences you suffer from that are a violation of the First Amendment. I think the only way people can look at that is from a real position of privilege. Yeah, it, I think that's. I think it's interesting. It's well. He, he, here's where I start. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll try to back up. You know, somebody who came out of journalism in the tradition of journalism and went to journalism school, we had a uh, journalism and the law class that we had to take. I went to Columbia Graduate School of Journalism, 1997, and it was very I much am. about this idea that that we have, you know, that freedom of speech is a right and it's something that protects journalists. And so if journalists want to be able to practice our profession and do it in a way that allows us to fully report and be honest with our readers, the First Amendment is there is very much there for us. And therefore, any sort of assault on the idea of freedom of speech was an assault on the idea of journalism. And of course, Journalism means a great deal to me. And I, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of like uh, givens when I was in journalism school, for example, that you, you only compete, you never collaborate with other journalists was another thing that I kind of felt, well, I, I don't, I don't know that I necessarily believe that. And over, over the years, I've kind of come to examine that again. And I feel like, especially given the way that the industry has changed, that when different outlets collaborate with one another, that's actually a good thing. And we, we can kind of get to the truth of something. And so, you know, I, I think that the idea of free speech, as I thought about it back then, has has changed in social media as part of that. Because, I mean, in effect, there are limits to free speech, which are never, ever policed online. And so somebody can threaten your life, threaten to rape you, um, send you photographs of horrible things. And that's all supposed to be protected speech. Although it's a, you know, if you'd actually, if you take a printout of a threat that would have been a, you know, that would be a threat under the law, if you take a printout of that and you march to your local police office, you know, police department, there's very little chance that the person who issues that threat will be prosecuted. And I, I think of it, you know, in a little bit of it has to do with what we talked about last week also, which is who do the laws protect and who gets in, who feels the full brunt of the law. And, you know, for example, women who um, have been sexually harassed, raped, domestic violence are have often found a very difficult hearing 
from anyone in law enforcement. Um, and, you know, you can look at the backlog of rape kits and, and all of that what we choose not to enforce and the laws we choose not to enforce. And I think with, with the idea of free speech is, is what it's just become is this idea that all, all speech is free. And if, if someone says something to you that crosses the line legally, you can't enforce it. Um, and I think we need to kind of come to terms with this idea that, that speech has, that there are people who pay for free speech for the free speech of others. And we are, we are imposing those costs on women and people of color uh, predominantly. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think, you know, the thing that about this that sort of um, follows the thread from this that I talked about last week is that if you go to, and by the way, I talk about this quite a bit in my book um, that's coming out March 16th. Excited to read um, it. I, I'm excited for it to come out. I mean, it's like, they say like writing a book is like having a baby. It is not. It's like having an <laughs> elephant birth where it's like, what is it, 22 months or something? That's much more what it's like. <laughs> um. And now I also feel obligated to throw a shout out to Ernie Pyle School of Journalism at Indiana University, just so we don't have only one journalism school getting shouted out <laughs> and this podcast. Um, anyway, Excellent. the, you know, when I, and I said this last week, when I look at guys who have sent me absolutely horrific pictures, um, guys who have said things to me where if I, if they said it to me on the street, they would be arrested immediately. No question. It's assault. It's a threat. It's stalking. It's harassment. It's everything. Um, you know, Twitter has played a real part in this perception with people. Um, and, and to a lesser extent, or I guess to probably the same extent, Facebook. Um, but I, when I think of online harassment a ton, I think of Twitter. And I guess that's just because where it's happened to me the most. Um, but this idea that what, you know, you can say, hey, this guy is threatening to kill me and rape my dead body, which is something I've actually said to Twitter. And then you get well, a You've heard it. You've heard back. it, I imagine. I doubt you've actually said it. No, I haven't said it. I mean, I've said to Twitter, hey, oh, this is oh, what I this see. guy said to me, or this is what this guy, here's the, you know, reporting a tweet. Right. Here's, here's this guy threatening to rape and kill me. And then you get a notice back saying this doesn't violate our, our guidelines. Right. I've, okay, I've had that happen too. Not quite right. that, not that same wording, but yeah. I feel like every woman who has an opinion online has probably had that happen to her at some point. And so what it's created is this group of entitled men who think that harassing women is their right. And it, you know, if you say, if you tell them to cut it out, you're violating their first amendment rights. If you say, Hey, you can't protest inside the Capitol because you broke in and you've got a gun that's violating their first amendment rights. It's just given way to this entire, this just completely bastardized, bizarre idea of what the First Amendment is. And by the way, we should be bringing back civics classes because I can't believe how much of America has no idea when the First Amendment applies. So you've got all these people on the floor of Congress screaming about censorship and they're being censored, which is the first irony is like Marjorie Taylor Greene today standing on the floor of Congress on television screaming that she's being censored. Right. With a mask that says censored on it. As she is speaking to an international audience and a microphone in the U.S. Capitol. Correct. Yeah. It's, so it is the ultimate in absurdity. Um, well, it's just stupid people. I mean, don't send morons to the Capitol to own the libs. Like, care more about yourself, you know, about, about self-preservation than that. But it's also, I think, what has happened with this is that it's not actually about free speech. We're not we're not talking about free speech necessarily, because obviously when you can speak on the Capitol in front of a microphone, you're able to speak. Free speech happens to be, you know, First Amendment is that the government can't keep you from speaking. What would Correct. be dangerous is if there were a political idea that you were espousing that didn't involve insurrection and killing people that was then prohibited because of the nature of the political idea. So what we've done is we've we've ceased to be able to reason through what speech is about. And and you know having having lived in the UK there are very different rules in Europe about what you can say and the ideas that you can espouse and I think it's because there is a more recent acknowledgement of the very real danger that some speech can cause you know, and I think particularly the speeches that I've seen of Adolf Hitler. And, you know, yep. this is, of course, the reductio ad Hitlerium, which is, you know, I tried to avoid Hitler analogies before the last two years or so. But I, I think we've kind of gotten to a point where 
when you actually have had good. people storm the yeah. Capitol building, you can actually talk about that now and not sound <laughs> like a crazy person. I um, think you're safe. <laughs> right. Well, and so I, I think that this is, this is part of the issue is it's not, it's not necessarily that we don't want people to talk to join the conversation in the body politic that, or that we want journalists to not be able to report the news. But I think we have to say that there that these these types of speech fall into different categories. And one of them, the disinformation and the hate speech, has made it has made our body politics sick. And I think you, when we have these absolute ideas of what speech is and that all speech should be allowed equally, what we do is we we are blind to the sickness that can be caused by certain types of hate speech and misinformation. So I, I just, I think, you know, the, I think women online and people of color online were actually the canary in the coal mine with this because getting constant threats and hate speech thrown at you um, and then in not being able to say, hey, this is, this is unreasonable and I'm, I'm paying an unreasonable cost to be able to speak on this platform and having people say, well, you know, that's just the, that's just what you have to do if you're going to be here. Um, I think if people had actually listened and this is, you know, this is what happens so often is that, you know, people complain and talk about the very real threats and violence that they are, are uh, subject to. And they're, they're ignored because it doesn't affect the people who most want to exercise those rights. Or even uh, the people who are subject to it say, you know, I, I know that when I talk about online harassment, even um, people that I know are friends and that support me, like roll their eyes and are like, oh, God, here she goes again. But, you know, I, I really feel like there is a, uh, a real parallel between journalists having to wade through 50 feet of, of death threats and rape threats and comments on their, you know, horrible comments on their appearance, not just like you're ugly, but like, I mean, that's like, a you know, I get that every day, but like really, really horrific stuff people say about you, about your body. Um, and, you know, people in the Capitol talking about how they're going to wear Kevlar. Well, under, how know, about murder the media? The yeah, murder it, media uh, sign that was painted on the wall. Is that- Which we're not talking about for some reason. <laughs> right, right. Because the, because the, you know, the, the speech of the the president of the United States, the now twice impeached president of the United States, has has led to this poison in our in our discussion. And the fact, if we ignore the fact that journalists are are being actually targeted and threatened with real bodily harm, as though well, that's just the inconvenient consequence of everybody being able to talk about you know their favorite breakfast cereal. Um, you know, that's we we are just not we are not viewing the totality of the situation in a way that will actually benefit our society. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So I know, Jane, I know you work at Marist College. I speak frequently, well, at least before COVID, to colleges and high school campuses and, and women who want to go into sports journalism. And they always, always ask me about the harassment. Mm -hmm. And I sort of never know what to say, because on the one hand, I've had so many young women say to me, um, I'm going to go, I, I, I wanted to be a journalist, but I'm going to go into PR because I don't think I can handle the trolling. And then at the same, I mean, so I, but at the same time, I want them to look it in the face because I was gobsmacked by it. When it happened to me, I wrote about, uh, my own rape and for Deadspin in like 2013 or something about my own sexual assault and that I didn't find the woman who was accusing Jameis Winston at the time, Erica Kinsman, I didn't find the things that she did afterwards that everyone was using to sort of say, oh, here's proof she that she wasn't raped. She texted him the next day. She did this. She couldn't remember, blah, blah, blah. And I was sort of like, that's pretty much in line with the experience I had in my sexual assault too. And that was when like the floodgates just opened. I had no idea FSU Twitter was a thing, but it was. And that was when I first started getting death threats it, seven years ago that like, I've been dealing with this. So I want women, I want young women to know what it is they're getting into, but I don't want them to be afraid to go into it. And I sort of never know how to walk that line. Right. And I think it has to do, and first of all, you know, I thank you for writing about that, Julie, because it's important for us to share our experiences, especially in situations like that. You know, think back to the time when you wrote that and how little understanding there was in popular culture of how women react to trauma, domestic violence, rape, these things that I think we have come to know more about 
Uh, although I don't necessarily think that any fan base is going to respond any better, unfortunately, uh, in this day and age than they would have back then. But I think a lot of people understand have a better understanding of how those situations work. But I, I agree with you. I, I want more women in this business. And I think there are a lot of things that women can get and contribute uh, to sports journalism. And so, yes, there is a very delicate balance um, between informing and scaring. <laughs> and it's really important that we're able to, to give young women the tools that they need to kind of, you know, parry some of these difficulties they come across. I think the worst things to happen are sometimes those that are surprising when you're not expecting a situation to kind of unravel the way that it does. And then once you've encountered it once or twice, you have a quip or you have a response or you're, you know who to go to to get something remedied. I mean, there are lots of different ways to handle it, but it's the first time that you encounter it. And how can you prepare young women in this business or in any other to be able to, to know how to respond to that first thing that they encounter so that it doesn't drive them out? Yeah, I completely agree. So before our guest gets here, because I know we're going to go back to this topic with our guest, I just wanted to talk really quickly about this huge NBA trade that happened today. So, I mean, first of all, we're dealing, we're in the middle of a pandemic, then we get a second impeachment of a president for the first time in history. And then we have this absolutely enormous trade that happens in the NBA. And I mean, it was huge. It was big news, but there was so much fat shaming of James Harden. I don't even like stop fat shaming James Harden. We've all put on weight in this pandemic. <laughs> that, yeah, that's, um, I, I, I couldn't agree more with that, obviously. I kind of feel like until I'm actually having to be in front of people that I just get to be who I am quietly by myself, <laughs> you know, right. Zoom aside. But I was, I, you know, it's funny because I, I saw that and I thought, oh, he's coming to the Nets. I can go see, oh, you know. No, you can't. I, oh, I won't be able to go. Uh, see him live for a while. But so even though he's going to be in, you know, New York City, and that just is such so emblematic of it, it's so funny to me, because these, these trades now, even though they're, you know, teams going back and forth, but it's kind of theoretical in a way, because it's not like you can actually experience it as a fan in any real way, for, you know, whoever knows how long. Right. Yeah, I mean, it was exciting for something to happen that wasn't related to the Capitol and impeachment and everything else just to have a break from all of it. Um, so there was that. And I mean, I was excited to write about something other than the freaking, you know, capital and all the fallout that surrounded it. But I mean, back to my original point, if I had to put on, you know, like shorts and a tank top and go jogging around in front of people right now, I wouldn't feel great either. No, no. But although I will say like with a beard like that, he's totally going to fit in in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can see that. <laughs> Don't you think? I think he's going to fit right like a poppy, in. Walking around. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's going to work. Joining us now in the ladies' room is one of our favorite people in the entire world. It is Laura Oakman. You know her from NFL on Fox. You see her every single Sunday. She's also the founder of Galvanize, which is a great program for women in broadcasting that we will talk about, I'm sure. And, you know, Laura, um, it's so great to have you here. And I know that Laura and I were, or excuse me, Jane and I were talking about uh, online harassment and sort of the threads that run through harassment that run, you know, into the stuff that we've been seeing this week, the, the rampant misogyny and racism and everything else. We were talking right before you came on about how we sort of try to navigate this when we have young women ask us, you know, how bad is the harassment or, you know, can I, can, should I do something else? Cause I don't want to be trolled. So how do you handle this when you have all these young women through your galvanized program who are aspiring or already are working in broadcasting? How do you prepare them for this? It's so hard. We, we spent so much time talking about this because I have a feeling you two are going to say the same thing that I'm about to say, but I'm, I'm always torn that these women who want to be on camera or if they want to do something publicly, part of me, half of me wants to just hug and, and push and encourage and be like, let's do this. And the other half wants to just squeeze and be like, don't do it. <laughs> just don't. Is there anything else you can do? Because if there is, do that. It's hard. And I think about how hard it is for them. And we didn't have to deal with what they're dealing with. Like I sit there and then sometimes just kind of shrug my shoulders as they're asking me for advice. And I'm going, 
I don't know because I didn't deal with social media at your ages, and I don't think I could have. My confidence wasn't nearly as strong. My self-esteem was crumbling Absolutely. when I was in my 20s, right? And even in my in my 30s. And so we talk about it a lot. And and it's hard because all you can do is hopefully give them a support group and give them a sort a support group that is going through it together. So at least it balances all that. Am I allowed to swear? I should have asked you. This. Of course. Okay. So it balances all that shit that you're hearing, you know, in your right ear, as long as your left ear, you're having voices saying how amazing you are and how outstanding you are. And, and, and you're crushing this and that's coming from other women that's coming from yourself. So I think that's what I try really hard to do a galvanize, which it is prepared and talk about how we feel about it. But also get in a you know get an army of women together to talk about how we're all navigating it, and that includes us at our ages because we're we're navigating it as well. Um, you know when they are, so it's 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 one of the hardest things because my heart hurts every time. My heart hurts more when I see these tweets at them than than it does for me. You know that we the three of us can handle it. But it crushes me knowing that that's what they're putting into their body, putting into their hearts and putting into their heads in their 20s. You know, it's so interesting um, for you to for Laura to bring it, bring that up, the idea of having a support group, because I know I was exactly the same way. My confidence in my 20s was absolutely in the toilet. And, you know, I don't know that it grew in this industry until I started and really until the online, uh, the advent of social media and knowing mm -hmm. other women and meeting women like you and meeting women like Andrea Kramer and like Jane and, and all these other people and being able to, uh, you know, connect with them about this kind of stuff. Um, especially if you're the only woman in your workplace, like a lot of us are, yeah. uh, but I think that, you know, one of the things that when I was the age of these young women that you're dealing with, I looked at other women as competition. And it took me a long time to sort of unlearn that and look at other women as allies. And I do think that, you know, and I hope this is not true for millennials and for Gen Z, but I know that as a Gen Xer, a lot of us are sort of raised that way, that you want to be the prettiest and the most popular and you want to date the cutest boy and all the other women our competition. And I think that in a workplace where there are so few women, it's really easy to look at another woman as competition. So how do you deal with that? Everything is really intentional it, because the first time that I threw a bunch of women together, you know, in, in the spirit of sisterhood before I really understood it, I, I didn't even understand how to be in a sisterhood, let alone how to create one or help build one. So in a very naive way, I just kind of threw women together. I was like, let's do this ladies. And and it didn't work because when I was, I, it was my, it was the first workshop I ever did. And I was sitting outside the door at a table and I was signing everybody up. I didn't know a single one of the women. It was just kind of a, you know, like, Hey, I'm trying to help, you know, are you trying to get into broadcasting? Do you want to be a part of this? And so 20 women were part of it. And I'm sitting at the table and signing them up and introducing myself and, you know, and trying to have some good energy there. And then I'd send them into the room. So they had about a half hour before, let's say we started officially. And I realized really quickly how much I screwed up because I had one ear, you know, to what the conversations I, I, I was in, but I had the other ear on the other room and I was listening to how they introduced each other. And it was all, what do you do? Who do you know? How much experience do you have? What sorority are you in? And I just sat there and I was shaking my head the whole time going, this is going to take me all day to undo. And it did. I mean, it was, it was all day to get them to see each other in a different way. So everything from that moment with Galvanize really shifted because I had to start thinking about how do I put a group of women together and make them, um, make them see each other as as allies, as sisters, as a support group versus as competition from the second they walk in. Because once you're once you walk in that room and you start going, she's so pretty, she's so skinny. I've seen her on TV. You see how that all works. And I don't think that's an age thing. You know, that's really a woman thing until you work on that. So I have an exercise now and this isn't just with galvanize, you know, with my women. This is when I go and do speeches and I'm with 500 women who are closer to our age and older. I make sure if I'm in, if I'm leading a room, they can't get there. From the second you walk in, I have exercises that they're working on. So they view each other in a different way. So 
that took me a while to find those exercises, to find ways to make sure that they see each other differently. But it's, uh, so what I say is it's very intentional, but it's also very doable. You just have to be very intentional about it and make sure that you also, I don't know, it's, I'd say that you have the right women, but I don't believe that. I believe that every woman who's not a woman's woman or a girl's girl, which I wasn't until I was 40, I believe we think that until we realize we are, we just haven't maybe been around the right women or the right situations to know that, hey, who knew? I, I thought I was a guy's girl my whole life, but I, I'm actually an outstanding girl's girl too. Laura, there are a couple of things that have changed since you and I and Julie came in the business. Number one, social media has taken over. That is part of your job now. Number two, I think the the front-facing role in a in a sports broadcast is the sideline role, which is the role that has been the role for the woman in the broadcast, um, which I think adds a degree of difficulty in some ways for young women coming in now, because you obviously, you want the accolade, you want the front-facing role, but to come in young, which is when they want you to come in, also means that you could make very public errors if you get someone's name wrong or something very basic, you know, that when you're starting off in this business, male or female, is very likely to happen. Um, and then third, I, I do think there are more women in the business for these young women to, to talk to, to have a mentor, like with through Galvanize um, and you. And I think, you know, I think a lot of us try uh, to reach out to young women and to give them advice in this business. But I am curious from what you hear from the young women that you uh, have at the Galvanize um, camps, what are they saying to each other about this? Do they understand kind of what they're coming into? I think so because they've been raised in it. You know, to us where it's, you know, everything's, oh, how would we handle this and learning how to handle it? But it's almost like, you know, they've been garnering likes, you know, for their whole, you know, they're, they're adult and I'm kind of air quoting their adult lives. So I find their skin is a little bit thicker than ours probably was. Like back, you know, back when we were starting, I, I just think about this a lot. When you got hate mail, someone had to really take a lot of time, right? Like they had to write a letter, they had to go get a stamp, they had to find the station's address. Like it was hard. So you didn't get that many, but I do remember getting some and it absolutely gutting me and having to work on that. They're so used to it now. So it... I'm not saying in any way they're fine with it, but I find that that they don't dwell on that as much as I thought maybe they would, as much as I would dwell on it. We dwell more on probably about how their peers make them feel, how bosses make them feel, how um, how when they're in certain circum, how they're somewhere out in the field, how they'll feel, you know, how their peers make them feel. So that's more to me the conversations we have versus social media, because again, I think, I just think they're better at tuning it out because they've handled it longer than we have. Does that make sense? Totally, totally. And I, the other thing is that that sideline role is not an easy one to step into and to have be your first role. And you've obviously done it incredibly well for years. And I think there are a lot of women in this business who, you know, show that it's a profession and not just a, you know, a the, you know, an Instagram live or something, yeah. but that you really have to know your stuff. But I think it must be so challenging to do it in the era of Zoom. And when you don't have that face-to-face -face connection with players and coaches and, and personnel like you usually, I mean, I, I remember when I was covering the Jets, you know, there were people in the stadium, in the locker room, you know, it's staffers, attendants, like it wasn't always talking. That's not where you always get all your information. And so in the era of Zoom, you're not going to run into somebody and then find out just a random piece of information and follow that up in the same way. How challenging has it been and how do you do your job now? So it's funny because your first point leads right to the second point. When I get a young woman who goes to galvanize and her answer, when I say, what do you want to do? And they say, I want to be a sideline reporter, which, you know, the majority raise their hand and say that. I always say, you're not allowed to leave these two days without a bigger answer than that. Because what I always tell them is, you know, sideline reporting is this awesome side of mashed potatoes. I love mashed potatoes, but it's not going to sustain me. I need that filet mignon. I don't eat red meat, so it's a horrible thing. <laughs> but, but if I was going to, I would have a wonderful, you know, filling uh, order of filet mignon and I would mix it with my mashed potatoes. But when I got into the into this field, now think about this. It's like 
you worked to get there. I watched, you know, I, I hate saying this because Pam's not much older than me, but Pam was doing this before me. So I was already a reporter. I had already gotten, you know, gotten my chops down, you know, that that I, I wasn't a sports reporter. I, I was a news reporter and then learned how to be a storyteller. And so I did everything. And then I watched Pam and was like, ooh, I hope I, I, I want to get to that point. And they've switched it now. So now the sideline reporters, the first thing they throw you into, and they've in so many, not every case, but in a lot of places, in a lot of cases, they've taken the reporter out of it. And, you know, every producer you have treats the role very differently. I've had some who've told me you have no value, you have no worth, we don't care if you show up tomorrow, nobody does. And you got to, you know, show up tomorrow and, you know, and work with a producer who told you he has no interest in you. And then I've worked with some, like my current one, Mark Teitelman, who's amazing and such a, an ally of sideline reporters because he sees the, the value and the worth of the storytelling and the importance of the eyes and the ears. So you have to navigate all of that. But it doesn't matter nowadays, you know, if, if, if we're covering a football game or we're covering a pandemic or, God forbid, you're in the middle of a game and something happens safety-wise, security-wise, I know how to turn that on. I'm not, I'm not a sports reporter. I'm a reporter. And so I worry a lot about these young women who get thrown in and they don't even know how to be a reporter yet. They don't even know what they're looking for. And so that's what was really, you know, that was the genesis of Galvanize, was seeing all these young women getting thrown into the sideline role and having them find me and saying, I, and me explaining before they did their first job, but they were hired, what an IFB is, how you, how you talk to your producer, what you're looking for, what do you ask a coach halftime? I was, I was having those conversations with women who were hired on a network level. And that really got me sad. And I started, you know, again, if that happened when I was 30, I would have been really judgmental of the women and would have been like, you know, you shouldn't be here. You're not prepared. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. Thankfully, it happened when I was older and more motherly and more protective. And I said, how can I help? So that was, that's how Galvanize was born to really go, I can't change the system, but how can I help these women when they get opportunities that I feel are a little too soon and I know I couldn't have handled how can I at least help them in that preparation? And so that leads to what you asked, Jane, because what I've had to do this year is lean on my relationships. So we're not going to facilities anymore. And that's where I got all my information on a Friday at the facility or a Saturday at the hotel and then three hours on Sunday pregame. So you're getting all your gold that way. Now we can't talk to anybody except Zooms. Now I don't get private one-on-one -on -one time on the Zooms. I'm with my play-by-play -play guy, my analyst and the head coach or, you know, whatever player. And, you know, so now it's kind of more of a conversation. And and now it's relying on me and my relationships to say to guys, hey, I, I can't get to you anymore. Can I get five minutes of your time? Can I? Can you come find me even though I'm not going to be on your side? Can you come over to the visitor side? I'll be, you know, standing at the, you know, the 30. Can you come talk to me pregame? So I've said that a whole bunch this year going, the reporters who have done this for a while, who can lean on people we're in much better shape than the ones who came in and don't have those relationships because this would be a, an impossible year, not a hard year, an impossible year to build relationships if you don't know people. Yeah. And, you know, Laura, I I know you and I have talked about this quite a bit. Spoiler alert, Laura's featured heavily in, in, in my book. And, you know, I don't know that people still understand because you see so many women on ESPN, right? So if I turn on ESPN or even if I turn on an NFL network, I see a lot of women, more women than we're used to seeing, not, not an equal amount of women, but I see plenty, of, I don't want to say plenty, but I see, you know, a, a, enough women there that I think that, that people can forget that how hard it still is for women in this industry and how it is, um, you know, we've talked before about how and you've spoken pretty eloquently about how being a sideline reporter is one of the toughest jobs on the field. And that's where you put the least experienced women and add to that, that women are the ones that are being scrutinized constantly to see if they make a mistake. 
And if you do make a mistake, you're going to catch hell for it. So I, I worry when I see, you know, I, I see you posting all those pictures from Galvanize and I see all these fresh young faces and they're oh, just yeah. beautiful. And, you know, you can tell how excited they are and how much support they have for each other. And I worry about them being in this position because I, you know, I remember my first solo radio show sort of being like, you know, no one told me what to do or gave me advice on how to kill time or, you know, fill the hours that I'm on by myself late at night. And I was sort of like, you guys don't understand. I am a woman in a man's field and people are not going to be as forgiving of me as they are of other people. So I'm gl- I'm so glad that Galvanize is out there because I, I do worry about these young women and I worry about people that don't know how many of us still walk into a room in this industry and are the only woman in the room. Right. All of us. And and I think about that every time, anytime women who are younger than me ask questions about how I handle things or how I would handle things, because I, I have to preface everything with, this is me at 50. So I can tell you how I walk into a room with confidence, with energy, with, you know, with not taking shit, like, you know, that, I, but that's me right now. If you would have asked me that at fo- at 40 or at 39 or at 29, you know, it's just... I, I couldn't have handled, I did not, I couldn't have, I didn't. I, I didn't handle any of that well. I kept my mouth shut. And I didn't, I was so afraid of saying the wrong thing. And that's not just in a press conference, but in a locker room, but that was in, you know, in the newsroom, you know, just being around, you know, my peers and and men. I was so paralyzed with the idea of saying the wrong thing. I just didn't say anything. And I think about that all the time where I look back in relationships throughout these 30 years, who people who I've known well in this business. And I think, gosh, I really didn't get to know them because I wasn't talking then. I wasn't using my voice at all. So I hear you. And Julie, my husband can tell you this, that there's, you know, there's times where I'll hang up the phone. He doesn't know who I'm talking to. And I'll walk into a room that he is and he'll look at me and go, which one's having a tough time? Because I wear it so much when these girls call and they're going through what we went through and things we haven't gone through. And it ki- it absolutely kills me. And I I probably don't I, I don't handle that well. I handle my own failure and my own, you know, my own, you know, fear and all that a whole lot better than these young women. And I just know that I just know that their their that their confidence is so fragile. And so it might be stronger. Like, I feel like I'm contradicting myself with the social media. I don't worry as much with that. But I worry so much about them being who I was in that fetal position and not enjoying any of this because you're paralyzed that you're going to do the wrong thing. And I think we've talked about this, Julie. And Jane, we may have too. It's just men say something stupid and yet we're stupid. So I still know that. I still know if I do a game, you know, this weekend and suddenly I call, you know, the Bills, the Lions, you know, and just like all of a sudden just say something, you know, dumb, just slip of the brain, slip of the tongue. I know that suddenly it's not Laura said something stupid, but she doesn't know anything about football. Right. Yeah, that that does happen. That does definitely happen still. One thing that I have been gratified by in the last couple of years is that I've seen young women kind of carve roles out for themselves that were not there, you know, when, when we were coming in, like, you know, I think of Katie Nolan or even Sarah Spain and, and there's a, and I cannot think of her name. I'm blanking on her name, but there's a young woman who does like TikToks where she wears different t-shirts from different teams. And then yep, yep. it's Annie Agar. She's amazing. Oh, she's hilarious. Yeah. And I just, I love that, you know, like people are, are not being limited necessarily. And women are finding ways to, to express themselves and be comfortable with being like funny and out of the, out of the box and not having to be so serious. I mean, I I like being a serious journalist and that's, (laughs) that's the way I'll see myself, but I like that there are other roles and that women can um, do that. I I would like to see them given higher profile roles and I'd like to see them be able to monetize that a little bit better, but until you produce it, until you figure out how to say it and do it, um, you can't, you know, you can't make money off of it and you can't be hired to do it. So I'm glad to see that. And which brings me to this Laura, which is really the biggest um, question you're going to face on this podcast today, Nickelodeon game. (laughs) (laughs) I was so literally went for, I reached over for a pen because I was like, wait, I don't want to, I want to want to forget to say something. (laughs) And I stopped when you said the most serious question, like, wait, and then picked up my pen again. Like, okay, we're good. Okay. (laughs) All right. Yes. Nickelodeon. Yes. I I had fun, right? And and I felt bad and I felt wrong because I was having fun watching I a football it. game. Right? Like it was fun and it was 
I just kept thinking, I wish I had a kid here <laughs> to be watching this with. Like, I would love to be sitting there with one of my, you know, nephews at the age they were learning football and not to be so serious and to just enjoy it and to not be picking at everything. It was, it was a total different way of watching this game that we take so seriously. And, and again, you know, it's just the no fun league, right? So I loved it. Did you guys? I absolutely loved it. I think Nate Burleson is one of those rare people that if you put him on a cooking show with Rachel Ray or you put him on like Today Show, you put him on, you know, an NFL pregame show or postgame show, put him in the booth, put him on Nickelodeon. He just seems to fit in no matter where you put him. And his enthusiasm for Nickelodeon, I think, sold the entire thing. 100%. Like, I felt like an outsider, you know, and it's probably how <laughs> football fans who aren't huge football fans watch and go, I don't understand this. You know, I didn't understand the Nickelodeon references, but I still had a fun time there. But 100%, because I was thinking about that too. He's so wonderful. I, and I, I agree with you. Anything he does and and who he is, I just, I love Nate. But it's, I'm so happy that it was a fun booth and I, and they couldn't, they, they would have to pick the right people for that because my fear would be, you would take NFL people and we'd be so serious about it. It was, it was really fun and also very informational. Like I, I'm sure kids or whoever watched it and didn't know a lot about football, I loved that they taught. I loved that somebody could not, that could watch a game and not feel stupid for not understanding something and come away understanding it. That's, you know, that's a great point too. I feel like when I first heard about it, somebody tweeted at me, was like, this kind of has a Joe Camel vibe to me. And I was like, ooh, yeah, you know, like way to sell the cigarettes to the kids. But at the same time, but then the way that it was actually done, you know, I don't think it was, it, I didn't really have that feeling, you know, it was, it felt, it felt like they'd actually done it in kind of a smart way. So I mean, look, I have Jane and I have kids who are a similar age, and these kids get into the NFL through fantasy football and through Madden at a very early age. So, you know, it, they're going to get to them sooner or later. Yeah, hundred percent. But and 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 that's you know again. So you have now you have a slate of games. You know, this weekend we have that you're going to be covering, and I am just. I mean, I'm struck by Brady Breeze because out of all of the things that are weird about this year that have gone wrong that feel unfamiliar, you here you have these two legendary quarterbacks that are going to be squaring off against each other. And I know, of course, that there are more people on an NFL team than just the quarterback. <laughs> but to me, like you know, these are this is the old guard. This is incredible to have these two players up against it healthy-ish, you know, at this time of year. And it is, it's not just the old guard, but it's like, it's the passing of, right? Like we're passing this, we're now look at the AFC and all quarterbacks are under 25. Yeah. And it's it's funny how they're both awesome, right? Like I, lo I love the, the you know, the old woman in me is like, yeah, you know, like, yeah, for the old guys and, and, <laughs> and just, you know, to watch them at this level and, and they haven't, you know, faced each other on, on this stage. And I'm so excited about that. But also, man, I'm loving this, this young quarterback thing. I'm, I'm obsessed with quarterbacks in year three. It's borderline weird. And any quarterback who's in year three would tell you that's how they feel about me that it's borderline odd because I love, love, love talking about quarterback growth. And year one is always, what am I doing? What am I doing? Year two is why am I doing it? And Drew taught me this. Year three is where your brain's a little bit more, you know, you can fill it a little bit more. So you start filling it with different buckets from different buckets. And so I have loved every year being able to say to Drew still, we had him this year and I was able to ask it, what bucket did you pull from this offseason in this crazy time? You know, what bucket did you not even know about? So I, so it, there's something wonderful about watching Drew and watching Tom at this stage and just how, you know, even with Tom learning a new system, just how, how effortless is and where he doesn't think and, and, you know, and eyes and head and feet and arm are all attached. But man, I love these young guys when we're still watching them think and we're still watching them grow. And I, I love that. So I'm equally in love with, you know, with, with watching, you know, watching right now with Drew versus Tom and also AFC and these young guys starting to really feel themselves. Yeah. Not, not all of us have Sam Darnold to grow. Oh, yeah. I said, I said not so much Sam Darnold. Yeah. <laughs> I've mentioned, uh, no, you know, I don't feel great about it. Yeah. It's a different, different kind of growth. Um, but the jets are known to grow quarterbacks that way. So it's kind of in keeping with, 
some of their past QBs. Um, that, you know, I, I, I just, I think it's, is there anything else that you're looking at in terms of this weekend? I, I think that Browns Chiefs game is kind of interesting just in terms of the improbable matchups. If, you know, if you took a time machine from two years ago to, you know, you might be a little confused about what's happening. hundred <laughs> percent. Wait, this is a playoff game or is this week seven? Um, I thought this was flexed out of Sunday night. football game. <laughs> that's what that would have been. hundred percent. Listen, it's, I'm like everyone, you know, that's the cool thing with this, with, with covering this league, right. And whatever sport that we cover, you really are fans of, of such great storylines and Cleveland's just full of them. And, I I have loved watching this Cleveland team grow. We had them once this year and it's it's a different energy. It's a different building, you know, without even being in the building and talking to players and coaches, it just doesn't feel familiar. It doesn't feel like Cleveland and it's been it's it's been really really wonderful watching them enjoy it. I just I love a team that is having fun. And this year more than ever when it hasn't been fun for so many teams. And Every conversation I know I've had with Jarvis Landry, and I was doing an interview with him after after uh, last week's win, and all of a sudden, a guy just kind of slides into a Zoom corner, and he's like making weird eyebrow things, and I'm staring at my Zoom, and but it's a mask, and it's a hat, and I'm like, is that Baker? Like, who is this? And it was Baker just like coming into the Zoom and having fun and walking off where I'm like, okay. <laughs> and it's just, they enjoy each other so much. And and I love that. In Kansas City, I had them week um, week 17. And I had a great conversation with one of my favorite guys, Tyron Matthew. And Tyron, was, I, I said to him, you know, I know you said week 16 that you guys hadn't, or wait, right going into week 16, you guys haven't played your best game yet. So how much are you thinking about that as you don't play for three weeks? And he's like, that's all I'm thinking about. That's all that's keeping me up. You know, so last year they they had some momentum going in, but for them to feel like right now we haven't played at our best because, you know, of this crazy season and just hoping that it's just going to kind of turn on as soon as, you know, as soon as this game starts, it's, it'll be interesting, you know, and again, it's just rust and rust, rust versus rust and one team, you know, like it's it's hard right now to not think the Chiefs are the best team in the NFL, but there's a few teams, Cleveland, Buffalo, that just are having so much fun right now. And and when you're hot at this, you know, in December and January and you're having fun, I, I just, you know, it's how Kansas City was last year. You, you just kind of ride that. So it'll be interesting. So I'm depressed about football. So I'm going to steer the conversation back to broadcasting because <laughs> my team got their asses whooped. <laughs> At the Saints, like trying to in the Nickelodeon game of all things. <laughs> um, well, but you still had the MVP of the Nickelodeon game. <laughs> he did win the MVP. <laughs> that whole that whole thing was amazing um, that night. But you know, Laura, I've got to ask you: the quarterbacks are not the only ones that are aging. Um, you know, everyone in this industry is getting older all the time, and we haven't seen a ton of women age on camera. Like a lot of women aren't allowed to do that, and. It's great, you know, now, and I always say, those of us working in this industry don't really have people to look to the way that men do, you know, where you can look at like Al Michaels, or you can look at someone else that's been there forever that is, you know, aging in the booth, Vin Scully or whoever it is. For women, it's pretty much been, you know, you're relegated to the sideline. And then once you, the men think you start to lose your looks, then suddenly you're, you know, you're out. But we now have a whole bunch of women who are being allowed to sort of age on camera alongside men. And I know, you know, that, that you have talked about this very openly in the past, how like nerve wracking it can be. How do you deal with that? I'm so proud of that. You know, it's, it's right now, someone was asking me yesterday about a couple of things that I accomplished. And I said, I, I you know, those are all like little jigsaw pieces, right? They're all little puzzle pieces. And I don't look so much at the pieces anymore. I look at the whole puzzle. And that's what I'm most proud of right now is just the longevity because I was told, you know, what as I was nearing 30, what are you going to do next? And and I name drop, but it's my favorite name drop in the world. My best friend, you know, for 20 years was Stuart Scott. And so Stuart and I constantly would talk about the difference of how we both were aging in our business. And Stuart would hear people say that to me, you know, what are you going to do next? And Stuart would be as offended as I was because he would be like, what do you mean? She's just getting good. Like, what do you mean, what is she doing next? And I would always say to him, can you imagine right now if people were asking you what you were doing? You know, when he had 30 and when he had 40, we had the same conversation. And and so 
I've always been, I've, I've always just been so depressed by that because you get to a point where you battle sexism, you battle sexism and you're like, yay, I won. I beat sexism. And then ageism is right there smacking you (laughs) in the face, you know, like (laughs) welcome. And so it's a lot. And so that's probably also, you know, I, why I was so looking forward to this conversation with you two, because I wrote this down before, uh, before we jumped on where I wrote down how many, I was like, how many calls have I done this week? And today, as we're taping this, it's Wednesday. And I've taken, I've, I've had 10 conversations, 10 women have called to say, I really need some help this week. So that's 10 calls on Wednesday. And every one of them has been so depressed about something and something the three of us have gone through. And all I kept thinking to myself was, I am so thankful to be past that. I'm so thankful right now to have a conversation with you two who understand that it, that it, it if you stay in this long enough, there's light. And it's not because there's a light waiting because it's been there or someone's holding it up for you. It's because you find it. You create that light. You know, you spark that light. And it's going back to what you asked earlier about just, you know, about how much you feel for those women. It's 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 always how I feel for them. I just want to hug them and I just want to say to them, just be strong. You're going to get through this, but you've got to be really, really strong. And I'm so in love with the idea that they can look to all of us now because we did not have this. There were no women over 40. There just weren't. You know, Leslie, you know, like Leslie Visser was always the one that we could be like, well, look at Leslie's doing it. They kept sliding her in different ways and roles, but she still was doing it. And now, going back to what you said, it's not enough of us. It's not a majority of us, but there are, there's a plenty of us, or maybe I should say that there's not plenty of us. There's enough of us that these young women can see older women doing it. And I think that's what I always hope that I'm showing them, which isn't what I'm doing for my job. It's just, I've been doing this a really long time and I don't want you to concentrate on a sweet sideline gig. I want you to start focusing on how do I build a career with longevity and start looking at women who've been doing this for a long time and look at their paths and look at what else they've done. You know, again, going back to that sideline reporter role, if you if you boil down to what my job is, it's it's going to be, you know, three and a half minutes on a Sunday. And and I hate that because I, I work just as hard as my play-by-play guy. I work just as hard as my analyst. I'm on the same meetings. I'm having just as many conversations. I can talk for three hours, but at the end of the day, that's your worth. That's, you know, if you're lucky, three and a half minutes. And so I, I, I so everything with me has always been, that's the mashed potatoes, but let me show you the whole plate here. Let me show you all the things that I've done that have l- allowed me to be doing this for a really long time. So I'm proud of every woman. Like, you know, everyone always thinks of me with these young women, which I'm crazy about. And I love that I have, you know, all these children, but I can't get to enough women who are my age and our age and just want to hug them and be like, we did it. We're doing it because it's a huge, huge deal that we're all here. That's so true. And I think we had Andrew Kramer on earlier this year, and it was about also kind of finding the new path for yourself and figuring out how to make a way, whether it's going from one thing to another or finding a way to kind of broaden your role and your ability to work in this business. And I just, as we're wrapping, want to point out, that's a great story about Stuart Scott. And you have to tell everybody what the name of your dog is. Uh, my dog is named Booyah. <laughs> and can I just say this, you guys, because there's nothing more wonderful than being at a dog park or being somewhere and somebody going, what's your dog's name? And if they if they don't know sports, I have to say three times, booyah, booyah. <laughs> but if they are a sports fan, you will hear for an hour while I'm walking around the park, just people yelling, booyah. And you just... <laughs> And my dog's running around to people like, what, what? But it, the joy that it brings when people yell his name and my husband, Mike, and I always say like, it's like we take a little bit of Stuart every time we go out somewhere because just the joy of that somebody gets when they yell booyah is pretty awesome. That seems like a really hopeful note to end on. Thank you so much, Laura, for being on our podcast, The Ladies Room today. Uh, that was a great conversation and I hope that everyone enjoyed it. And Laura, 
Good luck this weekend covering all these games. Uh, I can't thank you, ladies, enough for having me in the ladies' room. I'm such a fan of both of you, what you both do, who you both are, how you use your voices and your platforms. So I'm such fans of of you guys, and I'm so honored to be of, to have had this conversation. And no offense to my girls. I love them so much. But it's been nice, sisters. It's been nice to have a conversation. <laughs> it has been nice. With, <laughs> with a couple women who, you know, that we're going through it together. So thank you. Uh, Laura, you're the best. Take care. Thank you. Jane, I love Laura. I think everybody can see why we all love Laura so much. She's as genuine off camera as she is on camera. She's like that all the time. And she is just a wonderful person to have sort of shepherding the next generation of women into the industry, as are you. Oh, thank you. I mean, I I was I really relate to her and what she's doing and having, you know, been in this role at Marist now where I I work with, you know, the uh, the Center for Sports Communication and you know, the young women and men that I meet, it's so energizing. Like it it doesn't feel like I'm I I mean, it doesn't feel like I'm of a different it kind of just feels like I'm going through it with them again. And it's a tough time for the business. It's a tough time for these young people to get jobs. Um, and at the same time, you know, the issues are the same. They get really mm-hmm. excited about things that, you know, maybe I'd stop noticing in the same way. So it's a way to really kind of reconnect with the fire that you had when you got into the business. And I find that it, you know, it helps me kind of remain engaged and really interested. Um, I mean, it's hard not to, right? It's it's a, in, in some ways, you know, we, we're in a business that keeps you interested because of, by virtue of what it is. But at the same time, I think, you know, young people are so hungry when they come in and, and so unpolished um, for the most part. And I, so I just think that kind of being able to kind of go through it with them and, and see what she does um, with these young women that she works with as well. I, I just relate a lot to just how much that gives you in addition to, yeah. you know, what you give in order to work with them. Yeah. Uh, no, I completely agree. And and my my thing is not so much that I'm working with younger people. Well, not working like with them the way that you and Laura do. I just have a lot of friends who are like 25 to 35, which I, and I think I'm just super immature. <laughs> so I feel like I fit in with them. And the, like, after I leave, they're probably like, oh my God, she's so old. But I feel like <laughs> when I'm with them, I don't feel like there's a big age gap. I mean, I feel like there's, there's a thing where, you know, people could be anywhere from like 25 to 45, you know? Right. I feel as like long that's as you a, still have an eighth grade sense of humor, you can fit into any right. social situation. And I mean, I know all the Twitter memes. I know all the TikTok <laughs> dances. Like this, <laughs> I feel like I just sort of slip right in. Especially when I was working in radio, I had so many producers that were like 25. And so I would do a radio show and it was just like, it was so seamless, all of us just talking. And then I'd be driving home at like 1.30 in the morning on an empty highway being like, why is it so easy to talk for me to talk to 25 year olds? <laughs> like, I feel like it should be more difficult. I should have grown up more by now, but I have not. I still make anchorman jokes and, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, is Elf your favorite Christmas movie? No. Oh, what is it? Love Actually. <laughs> oh, do you hate me? I lived in London for two years and I can't, I can't with that movie. <laughs> well, look, I mean, hey, I lived in France and I can't with Emily in Paris. So that I know that feeling. <laughs> exactly. But no, I just, and I also love It's a Wonderful Life. Right. Well, this is a classic. I have to say, I think Elf has supplanted my favorite Christmas movie. I think it has. I just, uh, I think it's too funny. I, I just, every time he, he tries to go up the escalator, it's, it kills me. I, I love Elf. I mean, I watch it like every time it's on. What was your previous favorite? Probably uh, Wonderful, or no, Miracle on 34th Street oh. with Natalie Wood. The the one she was, oh, the black and white one. Little tiny Natalie Wood. Yeah. Yeah. Just exactly. I'm weeping, just huge tears by See, the end of it. That's I've, me every time George Bailey runs back down Main Street. Merry Christmas, you old building and loan. <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't. I don't know what it is about love, actually. I think I saw it at a time in my life when I was like especially emotional. I don't know. And it just, it just stuck. But I, yes, I know all the reasons that people hate love actually. And you know what? I don't like any of those other movies like New Year's Eve, Valentine's Day, Mother's Day. I don't like any of those either. It's just love actually. Well, there you go. It's got Colin Firth in it. How can you not like Colin Firth? He's, yes, I, I I agree with you on Colin Firth. I certainly do. There's okay, nothing. I, you know what? I don't defend myself to you or anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll take, a little, I'll take a little first pride and prejudice though over the love <laughs> yeah. action situation. Oh, that's yeah. gold standard. <laughs> um, <laughs> we've got a way off track. And here. that's sports. And that's sports for you. We like to talk sports. Yeah, this is a real sportsy podcast. Um, <laughs> started off with politics and end with Christmas movies. Why not? Topical. I mean, maybe two weeks late, but very topical last, you know, month. Yeah, we took a break over Christmas anyway, so. And, and no one noticed. No one said, like, hey, you guys didn't do a podcast this week. Well, last we, week. Left them, we left them with four podcasts. Who can get That's through true. all of that? It's a lot to chew on. I just felt like someone might have noticed. Someone at Deadspin, maybe. <laughs> Nobody said a word. Don't call us out, Julie. Whatever. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that's it for us. Yeah. If we if, hopefully we'll be back next week if our if our employer will still have us. Um, yeah. Hopefully we'll be back next week, and hopefully I will not be sitting on my bed watching CNN and MSNBC all day and watching people climb up the Capitol side of the Capitol for like the. By the way, did you see the? video of the guy falling off the side of the Capitol that people put to the Mario, Super Mario music. <laughs> I missed that. That was my favorite thing. He's climbing up the wall and the music's going and then he falls and he falls way down and lands on like a barrier and it's like Oh gosh, that sounds painful. It was like the one lighthearted moment to come out of. Yeah, I don't care if it was painful. Don't climb up the side of the Capitol, dumbass. Well, yeah, that that is, you know, that is the that is the moral of the story, is it not? Don't yeah. climb the Capitol. Yeah. Great. Agree I agree so. 100% with that. Yeah, but I, I am concerned about the weekend. My dad lives 14 blocks from the Capitol. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is, it, people are really scared. People who are in positions to know, like police officers and, you know, people in the National Guard and people whose jobs it is to monitor terrorism online are very concerned about this weekend. And yeah, so I'm time. guessing that you will still be watching CNN Ugh. all weekend. So that'll be fun. Something to look forward to. Yeah, it sounds great. Can't wait. <laughs> Can we have more Nickelodeon games, please? Well, like, honestly, if we're that still game, good, it was such a tonic of like, especially because I'm watching the Bears lose and, and I'm watching New Orleans try to hand the game to the Bears and the Bears just, you know, pissing it away. And, but watching, you know, every time Elvin Kamara goes in the end zone, watching the slime just somehow made it not hurt quite as much. That's right. The lubricant of our lives. That's true. All the good times. Slime. Give us all the Nickelodeon games next year. Yes. Oh, um, I, I know one thing I want to say. What? I'm going to get killed for this. I don't care. Every time someone comments on a diversity hire in the booth, every time someone's like, oh, well, she got that job because she's a woman or he got that job because he's a black guy. Why don't people say the same thing about all the freaking nepotism hires in sports broadcasting? Right. Well, and, and you and I both did stories on Bill Belichick this week. And of course, I was trying to look at the makeup of his coaching staff, which is predominantly white and also has two of his sons on it. Of course it does. But, you know, the same people that will complain about, like, Beth Moen's being in the booth won't say jack shit about I about Ian Eagle's kid or Chris Collinsworth's kid or Phil Simms' kid or any of these other guys. So I just want to put that out there because I was thinking about it during the Nickelodeon game. And I was like, we just accept nepotism in this in this industry. Like, it's just like, you know, oh, well, yeah, of course he got that job. He's Chris Collinsworth's kid. It's like, it's not supposed to be that way. Right. That's, I mean, that's absolutely true. And, they, and those hires do take away from the opportunities that other people could get. Yeah, I agree. It, it is unfortunately a fact of life. I mean, I just don't know how it seems. I mean, it, I, you know, on the one hand, if you grow up, like, for example, I think of Rex, Rex Ryan's kid, Seth, right? Who was a kid, who was a kid, who's not a kid anymore, but he was a kid when I was covering that team. Um, and of course is now, uh, is now coaching in the NFL. And, you know, those, those children of grow up around the industry that they're actually in. So, I mean, in some ways it's a bit of a leg up. So they may know more about it because they've been around it for so long. And yet at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean they're the best person for whatever role they end up falling into. Yeah, completely agree. I just wanted to get that off my chest. Consider it done. Thank you. So next By the way, week, just send all your nasty tweets to me. Don't bother Jane with it. It was my thought, not hers. 
That's that's not fair. I'll take just add them to the pile. Like I've yeah, been exactly. bitching about the capital stuff just nonstop since last week. So like my inbox is such a shit show. It is, I mean, it is unbelievable. I need to hire someone to go in and like clean it out. Yeah. Well, it's not going to get, and for, I mean, I just, you know what? In two weeks, I'm going in and I'm deleting like 50% of my tweets from the last four years. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. I, yeah, no, I've done that. I've deleted a bunch of tweets from like, I, I think I started with like 2016 backwards. Um, In large, because like, I'm not the same person. It's not to like try to hide stuff. But I mean, I think that we all grow and learn things and try to do better. And, you know, going back a couple of years and finding someone's tweets, I'm okay with that. Going back 10 years with someone's stuff, I think it's a little wonky, a little janky. Yes, we're we're now that you've been on Twitter, we've, you know, collectively, many of us have been on Twitter for the last 10 years, if not much longer. Yes, it's getting a little dicey, I'm sure. Yeah. And some of the dumbest shit I've ever said is archived into the Library of Congress. So, I mean, (laughs) if you really want to see what I tweeted, I guess go there. (laughs) If you can get in. Yeah, but I think everybody should leave, leave up like your past two years of tweets and get rid of everything before that. Yeah. Well, you know, these are all ideas that I will not discuss publicly. If I if I have any of those plans, I plan to I will keep them to myself. Um, you know, <laughs> sorry, we've been, we've been at this for a while. This is the longest podcast that we've we've probably had. Yeah, have fun uh, to the guy who's going to edit it all down for us. Uh, we apologize in advance. <laughs> Hope that you guys will give us a follow uh, on Twitter at Jane Sports and at Julie DeCaro, and we'll see you guys next week here on the Ladies Room.